0: Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support.
1: Hi, this is Riley Fessler. This week, the DSR Spy Show gets a new name. From now on, our weekly show hosted by Mark Palomaropoulos and David Rothkoff will be called DSR's Above Average Intelligence. To celebrate the new name, this week's episode from the silo is the very first episode hosted by Mark. Please enjoy. 9
2: 12 10 28 2 23. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast from us here at DSR. This is the first in a new series of podcasts we'll be doing every single week, uh, recording on Mondays. This was the DSR Spy Show, and it is... Co-hosted by my friend and sometimes recent guest here at DSR, Mark Polymeropoulos, CIA uh, veteran, also uh, recently uh, uh, Morning Joe veteran, MSNBC uh, commentator. How are you doing this morning, Mark?
1: I'm doing great, David. It's good to be here, and I am. Uh, I'm very happy to note that you pronounced my name correctly. So we're gonna we're gonna test you later on if you can spell it backwards, but that's well done. That's the first test in any. Anytime I go on any show, is if someone can pronounce my name, so you passed.
2: Well, c- can I opt for waterboarding as my second, first choice? And <laughs>
1: you're going there already. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, going uh, t- episode five.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Today, um, uh, we have a, a special guest, Paul uh, Colby, who uh, is a. Uh, A longtime CIA veteran, has also provided uh, intelligence and insights for big corporations and led the Intel program uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School for quite some time. I actually am sitting not 20 feet away from the Harvard Kennedy School at this moment. Uh, Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, David. Hey, Mark. Uh, Each week, we're going to, on this show, uh, provide perspectives on the news from the perspective of folks with uh, loads of intelligence uh, community experience like these guys. Uh, We think it's uh, a critical component of our increasingly well-rounded list of uh, expert perspectives uh, and something that we know uh, our... um, members and listeners have been uh, wanting for a long, long time. So let me turn it to you, Mark, for the first question to Paul.
1: Sure. And let me let me first say, you know, it's a great honor to have Paul on for a number of reasons. He's one of the most widely respected former intelligence officers kind of uh, amongst this, you know, the crowd we have, um, uh, uh, not only in the DC area, but Paul is out in the, in the Midwest now. So uh, tons of respect for him, um, you know, former station chief, former head of the division that um, that certainly oversaw operations against uh, against Russia. and I think that's we're gonna focus quite a bit on that today. But most importantly, just the, one of the, the one of the nicest guys around, which is not always what you get in our old profession. So I will say that that Paul is one of the good guys. Um, but I think that let's 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 jump off and and you know talk about some current news uh, uh, on Ukraine. and there was there was a piece in The Washington Post yesterday that kind of caught everyone's surprise. and this was one of the you know the exposes that that came out based on the the DoD leaks. But it was the notion that the head of the Wagner Group, the, the Russian paramilitary group, um, which gets a lot of you know press these days, but the head of it, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has actually been in secret talks with Ukrainian intelligence, and in one instance, according to the Washington Post, offered to provide uh, positions uh, of, of the Russian military. So this goes you know kind of jumping right into where we are in the war in Ukraine. Paul, what do you think of that? Um, I was you know my my first inclination is, wow, is that is this is this true? Is it not true? And and then in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, Ukrainian intelligence is pretty damn good, regardless if they're having these kind of back channels. Um, but anyway, your thoughts on the on this this kind of uh, uh, kind of bombshell on, on the on the on the per- information?
3: Well, Mark, straight straight into a wilderness of mirrors, right? So, I, I mean, fr- first point is, is this accurate or not? Um, Very difficult to judge from the outside. Certainly could be a piece of disinformation designed to undermine or discredit uh, Prigozhin and make the Russians look ridiculous. Um, But as you well know, one of the great advantages of intelligence services is their ability to carry on quiet, under-the-radar conversations with the fiercest of adversaries. You've been involved in many situations where politically countries were at loggerheads or individuals at loggerheads, but quietly behind the scenes, they're having discussions. Sometimes they're feeling each other out. Sometimes each are trying to gain an advantage. Uh, Sometimes um, people are trying to play uh, another service, say, against their own government. So you could easily imagine that Prigozhin is looking for, A, perhaps an escape route, uh, B, a way to uh, provide influence of his own on Ukraine's actions, or to use Ukraine to undermine his own enemies within Russia. For me, the most fascinating part of it is that it reflects the divisions that I think are becoming increasingly exposed of infighting within the Russian intelligence and military and political circles.
2: Um, Now, it's an interesting story in and of itself, which, as you say, raises as many questions as it answers. But it's also an interesting story in the context of the increasingly interesting story of Prigozhin, because over the course of the past few uh, weeks, he has spoken out against Putin. He has called Putin a grandpa. He, he has you know, condemned Russia for not providing him with sufficient ammunition. He said he's out. Then he said he's back in. Then he said he was out again. Most recently he said, okay, I'll go in and take Bakhmut, which is essentially at this point, tragically a big hole in the ground, but then I'll leave it to the, you know, airborne troops to uh, defend what I've taken. Um, What do you, what do you, what do you make of this kind of contentious relationship between Prigozhin and his former, you know, bestie and sponsor Putin? I mean, it reminds me of it uh, of a an
3: untrained, unreliable attack dog. so used used for particular situations, quite convenient uh, for a long time. Progosion, I mean, so let's go back to where we first started hearing the name Progosion. It was with the uh, uh, internet research agency um, and the sponsorship of the hacking uh, that that uh, particular outfit did most notably and notoriously, of the Democratic National Committee um, uh, back in 2016 and its efforts to uh, uh, hack into U.S. systems and to affect the 2016 election. But Prigozhin also has been very active in Africa with uh, mercenaries deployed there in Libya, Central African Republic, uh, elsewhere. Um, So he's been a very useful tool uh, for the Russian government deniable set of, uh, plausibly deniable, implausibly deniable set of uh, capabilities. When it shifted to conventional warfare and the massive expansion um, of the Wagner Group and its activities in Ukraine, uh, initially was seen as, you know, maybe a a sharp knife that could be used, uh, but ended up becoming quite a blunt instrument. And it's, (laughs) <laughs> you saw the videos of him being uh, in Russian prisons, recruiting prisoners, saying, "Look, we'll get you out of prison. Uh, you may die in six months, but if you don't, you know, you're good to go." Um, so he's been very useful, but increasingly volatile and unreliable. It's a heck of an offer, really. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the remarkable videos of it. You know his his pitch to the to, to the. Uh, Prisoners.
1: People. So, one of the things on this is, you know, why? You know, does this? First of all, does this matter in terms of what is what is really uh, the biggest issue at hand now, which is the counteroffensive? You know, I mean, some argue that it has started already. Um, that shaping operations, uh, you know, have begun. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and of course, when you talk about David mentioned Bakhmut, um, it's a it's a you know arguably unimportant strategically uh, uh, location, but ukrainians for some time have really pushed the notion that we're going to bleed the Russians uh, as much as possible there and and I think one of the things that is that is interesting is that you saw particularly in the American media a lot of criticism and this is you know ostensibly leaks from the administration that this was the wrong strategy the Ukrainians um, uh, were, were using but it turns out it may have been correct and so two things on that one one Paul I think that you know both you and I were case officers for the for the agency and then also did some time at headquarters but I always you know one of the things that and David and I talking about this show in particular, we're going to have a lot uh, of guests on, um, like yourself, who is in the field. So you actually, you know, have a different view of things. You know, you know, if you were not retired and, you know, enjoying your uh, your retirement now, you, you know, you can make an argument you would actually be in or around Ukraine. You might be working with our partners there. And, and you know, I think their, their view of things is always going to be a little bit different than what officials in the National Security Council uh, are thinking. And that's OK. You know, two views are important. Um, But I think it's it's you know it's good to note that uh, the the view from the field is actually really important. Um, So you know overall, uh, uh, what's your what's your sense on on the offensive? Um, You know, has it started? What are the what are the goals? And then most importantly, is is do you dispute the notion that you hear again a lot that you know the administration is going is going to um, uh, really take a look at whether the Ukrainians are successful or not in terms of future support? That's kind of a narrative that's out there as well. That again, from a field. Person like myself uh, that that, uh, that annoys me quite a bit. Um, so your thoughts?
3: Yeah, well, as, as, you, as you know, Mark, there's there's an awful lot of opinions and an awful lot of uninformed commentary and a lot of armchair experts um, out there. And w- the one phrase with, that is constantly used in the press, which just drives me out of my mind, is when they describe Bakhmut as strategically unimportant. So in 1863, summer of 1863. Nobody had ever heard of Gettysburg. It was not a strategically important location, but it became a fulcrum on which the war turned, right? Because forces concentrated and met there in a decisive battle. Now, is Bakhmut that decisive battle as Gettysburg? That's probably pulling a little too far, but there's no doubt that it was strategically important for Putin and for Russia um, for lots of reasons. One, the simple Amount of forces and the persistence. This fight has been going on for a year in, over over Bakhmut. It's been the most intense warfare, the most concentrated warfare of the entire campaign. Um, and just as uh, before the war, when there were a lot of doubters of Ukraine's capability and its military, and who, believers that Kiev would fall in three days uh, and that Ukraine wouldn't put up much of a fight. Same as held true with Bakhmut. Lots of, uh, I think, defeatism of saying, well, oh, and advice, gratuitous advice to Zelensky, pull out, pull back, you can't hold it, it's not important, you're wasting your resources. Well, the resources that got wasted and wasted over and over again were Russians, Russian soldiers, Russian prisoners, Russian ammunition, short supplies it became a crucible in which a uh, tremendous amount of russian resources men and equipment were wasted um, and now you see local counteroffensives in and around bakhmut which are taking advantage of just what ukraine wanted to do exhausted
2: demoralized badly led troops you know, just the way Mark framed that question brings one to mind. And um, you talk about armchair experts, and, you know, that's the role I play on this podcast. You know, John, well, Mark, Mark, Mark's the guy out there. I've always been the Washington policy guy. Um, but, um, you know, this war, this phase of the war, because we, we, we should always remind our listeners and ourselves that this is a war that's now in its 10th year. Um, uh, but, um, this, this phase of the war began with some interesting and unexpected, um, um, maneuvers on the, uh, Intel front, us sharing Intel, us making it public, us using Intel as a kind of a a weapon, which I think in general, the agency got kudos for the administration got kudos for, but I think the average listener has to wonder you know we talk about tanks we talk about f-16s we talk about attackums what is the west providing to ukraine in the way of intel support now obviously we can't be specific but it's 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 i I just think it puts it in some context um and, and 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 again i'm not asking you know for people to talk about things that they shouldn't but in instead to say Um, what might Ukraine expect from us? What might we be able to provide that augments their capabilities on the shadow side of our support?
3: So speaking just from what's appeared in public, it's clear that not just the U.S., but uh, all of Ukraine's allies and supporters in this effort have been able to provide Ukraine with both strategic and tactical intelligence. So you pointed out one of the most important pieces, the warning. Sorry about that. The warning that uh, one of the most important pieces that Ukraine received both strategic and quite specific warning of Russia's plans and intentions to attack. That's absolutely remarkable. It's rare and Mark can corroborate this, it's rare that you actually, you might have strategic warning. 9-11, we had strategic warning. We knew 9-11, we knew that Al-Qaeda was going to attack us, that they wanted to, that they had the intention to, we didn't have the specific time and date. In this case, we had the specific time and date and how they were going to invade down to this airborne uh, uh, company is going to be heading to Hostamal Airport uh, to secure a beachhead, uh, as it were. I would hope that that's continuing uh, throughout the course of the war. I don't know.
1: So, I I mean, I think so, and and it's probably matured as well. I think probably that you know the the administration has gotten more comfortable um, in in passing even kind of intelligence, even more granularity. You know, there's been a lot in the press about about you know targeting um, and how deep we are in uh, uh, to that. But there's there's no doubt that um, that the I think the U.S. intelligence community has played a an enormous role now. I mean, you can make you know, look, U.S. military is not on the ground uh, in in Ukraine, so you know you can you can make the quip, and I've I've said this often. I don't know if it's true or not. but I get a sense it is that you know the combatant command for the United States uh, uh, in this war is Langley, is the agency, and and that's something that exactly is in line with President Biden's goals of keeping U.S. boots um, uh, out of Ukraine and 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 you know on, on the issue of especially you know managing that the 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 question or the worry about escalation with Russia, but I think. Going back to, to something and, and think back in your career on this, Paul, um, you know, one of the things that I that I that I always thought was fascinating is on February of last year, you know, when uh, when the Russians, it looked like they were going to invade. It's not like Zelensky had to had to call Langley, he had to call CIA headquarters. He actually just had to go down the road to, to the U.S. Embassy uh, or to wherever, uh, you know, uh, U.S. officials um, had been there for a long time, because guess what? And, you know, this goes into the notion of what we do in the intelligence community. Um, there was a long-term investment in Ukraine started back in 2014, eight years um, uh, or, you know, or, or, or plus uh, prior to the invasion. Um, it's the notion of, you know, what we do and kind of what I call defending forward. Um, uh, it's investing in partners. And so, you know, the, 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 the intelligence community spent a lot of time and effort in Ukraine um, uh at, at a time, you know, when we had uh, a, a lot of folks on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, other places, this was kind of the non-sexy conflict to use a pretty horrible term for it. but but boy, it paid off. And so you know, give a sense of, of in your career and what I call, you know how, how we put in the plumbing um, overseas for contingencies like this. Um, you know, do, do, you, do you agree with that notion in the sense that, that Ukraine was was a success story, not just on how we reacted, but the fact that, that we were there for years and years and really invested in those relationships?
3: No, 100 percent right. This is not an overnight success story. Um, it, it does reflect, you know, deep, long engagement um, at many different levels. Right. So uh, you talk about the dime paradigm where you need both diplomacy, intelligence, military and economic engagement. Um and where we fail, it's when those things aren't put together. So intelligence is always an important piece of it. It's never the only piece of it. Um, and uh, US is both, you know, we, we often fall prey to uh, kind of the hubris of thinking that, you know, we're, we're the one key that that, that makes things work. I, I'd go back and point out too that Ukraine has, while their, their military has been extraordinarily capable, resourceful, resilient, and adaptive, um, I would argue that you probably have the same uh, characteristics reflected with the Ukrainian intelligence services. Um, you look at the job that they did it have done in um, in uh, uh, preventing sabotage and in shutting down Russian networks, and you know well that the Russians will have for decades worked to deeply penetrate. The Ukrainian intelligence services viewed them as you know essentially a vassal service in their own mind in the same way that they viewed the country um, and viewed it as sort of their wholly owned subsidiary um, but it's clear that the uh, Ukraine has um, built a, a uh, strong resilient and effective set of their own intelligence
2: capabilities you know it's it's interesting just as a as an as, as an observer of these things and somebody's written a little bit about them over time Um, I I personally don't think our response in 2014, when all this started was very strong. Uh, there was a lot of internal debate about, you know, in fact, I remember one meeting, which I've mentioned before, where somebody came from a meeting, somebody who's now very senior in the government came from a meeting and said, I was just in a debate about whether we should provide them with blankets or meals ready to eat, you know, and it was not, you know, we weren't going to do anything particularly strong. Uh, so we did want to, you know, we, we tried to come up with things that weren't that visible. And, and there were two things that weren't that visible that we were able to provide them with. And one was training for their military, particularly sort of down-the-line training, like sergeants and so forth, that broke them out of the Warsaw Pact paradigm and into our own. And the other was intel. And both have proven to be incredibly useful. Nine years later, right? Both have proven to be incredibly useful by accident. It wasn't the plan, <laughs> but they 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 have they have paid off. Going back to the Prigozhin uh, uh, comments that a, a bit earlier, uh, you know, another thing this all echoes, and and both of you may have thoughts on this, but another thing this all echoes is, you know, Russia in Afghanistan. Russia goes in. They have a lot of hubris. They've got a lot of big forces. They think this is going to go well, and uh, of course, it, of course, it doesn't. When that happened with Russia and Afghanistan, it led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. It led to the end of administrations. There's been a lot of talk about what this might do to Putin's reign. What's it going to do to Putin's reign, Paul? <laughs> well, it's, don't have a crystal ball, um, but
3: uh, wars that end badly for uh, and Russia have not have also ended badly um, for Russian leaders uh, historically. Look, I mean, hes staked his entire credibility uh, on this uh, misadventure. Um, and it's been a spectacular failure. Uh, it's a failure militarily. It's a failure economically. Russia is not poised to thrive uh, uh, for the rest of the twenty first century. Um, while sanctions have not were not effective in deterring, Uh, uh, attack. They are having an increasingly corrosive, erosive effect on Russia's capability to continue to fund uh, the war, to create the supplies needed to prosecute the war, particularly if it's going to be a long one. The advantage that Russia has and that they will always fall back on um, is in terms of what uh, Russian general told me before the war, retired general told me just before the war, um, we're prepared to suffer more than you are. Uh, and Russians have this um, national sense of we can put up with anything we can put up with privation in order to outlast um, our uh, our uh, enemies and that's why Putin keeps trying to draw parallels back with World War II. Um, you know Russia lost 27 million citizens to the course of World War II. Um, most of them at the hands of their own leaders, not at the hands of the Nazis and, and Hitler. Um, that being said, they were prepared to suffer, um, and I see that that is still being called in and uh, 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 called into play. Um, so I don't think anyone can be complacent that this war is going to be suddenly over um, in a miraculous Ukrainian counteroffensive over the course of the next few months. Um, I fear that it's going to drag on for some time. As long as it drags on, Putin will stay in power, unless he's taken out from within, and I don't see any signs of that. Not that I would.
1: One of the things that I think is uh, is fascinating, and and there's a lot of undercurrents, um, kind of in our little weird kind of David. You're you're certainly a, a member of this too. The kind of the DC blob uh, when you talk about you know what is discussed um, at the White House, the National Security Council, in, in policy meetings, and and that is. The notion uh, there's always this ever-present fear of of you know Russian catastrophic collapse in the sense of you know is Putin better as the as the devil we know and and to me uh, I, and I understand that you we have to have those discussions you know what if what if uh, uh, you know Putin does does fall you have a you have a country with with nuclear weapons that's unstable and that's always in the back of people's minds probably I would say that you know Bill Burns who is a you know former ambassador he's a Russian speaker he knows Putin very well he's probably thinking about these things. Um, at the same time, though, I do wonder if this inhibits, uh, uh, you know, provision of additional um, uh, weapons and armaments that actually could lead to a a, a more resounding Ukrainian um, re- Ukrainian results on the battlefield. And so, you know, I want to pose Paul, this question to you, because as someone who's been in the field, so you would have been on that end working with the Ukrainians, um, giving them or wanting to give them all that they need, seeing your partners whose you know, whose, whose family members have been killed or who are in, you know, in, in, in underground bunkers as there are these kamikaze drones coming. Um, so you have that field perspective, but also you understand from being a division chief at CIA, you probably would be at a National Security Council meeting where these questions um, do deserve to be considered. So what's your view on that? You know, the idea of a fear of a, of a catastrophic collapse, should that really dominate um, or affect uh, you know what we do for Ukraine in particular in things such as you know long-range missiles s-16s and others where a lot of people do think that can make a difference
3: well look yeah I mean and you know many different scenarios have to be considered you know as policy is being made um and catastrophic collapse you know would be one of them uh, you know I'd look to the intelligence assessments and and wider um, historical analogies of you know when have you seen catastrophic collapse within russia so you can go back to russian civil war um bolshevik revolution um uh people will try to draw analogies with yugoslavia i don't think they're necessarily uh, accurate so it's a it's a factor but i think the what what the question begs is is going back to you know what were the some of the causes of the war and i and i think there's there's Often hear the argument: Well, you know, the West is to blame, and many make it. The West was to blame for it because of its actions, uh, because of NATO expansion, because we disrespected Russia, because we tried to hold them down economically. You, you know, in fact, in the course of the 90s, we poured billions of dollars into Russia to try to bolster the economy, to try to help with their disarmament of nuclear and chemical weapons, to pull them close to NATO. They were part of NATO ship partners for partners for peace uh, program. Uh, We completely unilaterally disarmed with regards to intelligence collection on Russia. Uh, We focused post nine 11 on the counterterrorism wars in Afghanistan and and Iraq. Um, And uh, politically we Pretended Russia didn't exist Um, and there was a point where you know each president that came through each new administration Bush Clinton Obama uh, uh, Thought that they could engage with Russia positively when that failed uh, When they got talked to the hand then they tended to ignore it and push off to other problems And there was a mantra that you know Russia doesn't matter except for how it impacts other third-party or peripheral interests So I would argue that it's not what we did that caused this. War. It's what we didn't do, we didn't establish deterrence after the invasion of Georgia. We didn't respond, as David noted, effectively at all after Russia's invasion, occupation of Crimea and eastern Ukraine in 2014. We didn't provide the clear lines, the clear boundaries for Russian behavior. Um, and we didn't, uh, we didn't engage as positively enough as we could have. We didn't have the proper uh, uh, combination of carrots and sticks. Instead, we uh, drifted off
2: looking at other problems. Yeah, it, you know, I uh, listening to your uh, description of history there, we, we do have to note that one bold thinker uh, was our, our last president, Donald Trump, who tried to turn us into Trumpistan. Uh, a subsidiary of russia which is a whole different approach but uh we'll skip over that and the the politics associated with it and uh, as soon as we get back from this mini break we'll talk about a recent development past few days that could be really a big deal and uh, frankly i don't think is getting covered that way in the press uh but first this is the point where in each of our dsr podcasts we say goodbye to those of you in the general public who haven't yet become members uh, and say you should become members. Go to the dsrnetwork.com click on membership for $5 a month. You get this increasing, expanding lineup of podcasts. There'll be major podcasts every single day of the week. Um, and you'll get to listen to all of them, uh, which you don't if you're not a member. So go do that, and then you'll be able to come back and listen to what is about to follow. For our members, stand by. So the big development that I am referring to, um, uh, Paul, but I'm also interested in your reaction to it, Mark, is the apparent uh, uh, failing health of Lukashenko in Belarus. Um, And I'm interested in this because there is a Belarusian uh, resistance movement that would very eagerly take over uh, if there was a void at the top there. Uh, going into Ukraine, Putin's idea was, well, see, we, we can come uh, straight down from the north, from Belarus, and these guys can be a base, they can be an ally, who knows, maybe they'll even uh, send in their army at some point. Uh, but now this could be the reverse. If If there is a struggle there, Putin may feel compelled to go in and prop up a regime, which could be a big distraction for him from Ukraine. Uh, and he all of a sudden is fighting a two-front war. What do you think, Paul? <laughs>
3: well, uh, I mean, the, my brain first goes to what's the cause of his failing health. So could well be life, you know, traditional you know, post-Soviet male lifestyle issues of alcoholism and deprivation, um, which leads to one of the lowest life expenses on the face of the planet. So you don't you don't think
2: but you don't think Lukashenko has a peloton at home, and he's like, (laughs) and and if he does, I don't want to see those (laughs) pictures.
3: Um, No, but you can't exclude, you know, the possibility that his ill health may be induced. Um, There's a long, rich, and recent history of uh, potential uh, irritants uh, or actual irritants to uh, Putin to uh, suffer. Uh, unhappy fates. Um, regardless, unless Putin has someone lined up and with a plan to uh, maintain control of Belarus, instability there is a strategic nightmare uh, for him. Look, uh, Lukashenko for decades has played um, kind of this uh, teasing role with Russia. You know, are we going to join? Are we not going to join? Are we going to have a union? Or are we not going to have a union? He uh, kind of leans towards Europe uh, every so often and then leans back towards uh leads back towards Russia so he's played this kind of um, uh middle role teasing both sides he's one of the you know folks say he's the last remaining dictator in Europe that I think that's probably no longer accurate uh, since there's some new contenders but he um that regardless uh instability and insecurity in Belarus on Russia's flank is a nightmare for Putin look they've already expanded as a result of the war they've doubled the size of the NATO um, uh, the NATO border with the accession of Finland um, having to deploy resources to keep control there um, will take away from the war would take away from the war effort there is a the only reason Lukashenko stayed in power was because of Russian intervention uh in the face of massive civil protests. So yeah, it's a
2: it's a, a potential, um, a, a real flying ointment for yeah. Putin. Yeah, Mark, they they only have that one T thirty four tank that showed up at the May parade. So I love that. <laughs>
1: and you know, so start. one of the things that what, what what caught my attention yesterday when this was all over social media um, uh, was was you know one of course is it true or not uh number two is you know who did it uh uh but the 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 the, i think the key part in this is that and, and ukrainians and again i think we we often we give too much credit for the west's support and not enough credit for ukrainian military and intelligence kind of ingenuity and resolve but um if budanov the head of you know ukrainian military intelligence and zelensky and others don't see this as an opportunity um, that's crazy because you know th- there is a sense that that you know uh, Putin and Russia will be distracted if this is true, and and you know this is a time, of course, where you know this this pending offensive is uh, uh, you know is is on our doorstep. This is this is a gift almost um, for the Ukrainians to really take advantage of. Um, so I think that's how they'll they'll see it as well. I hope we don't read about that in future. You know, DoD leaks um, on what the Ukrainians are uh, thinking. But
2: but, but but let me. But can I just interject and let me ask both sure. you guys. I could imagine in my, you know, uh, fevered mind, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Alan Dulles or, uh, Bill Casey's of the past saying, Hey, this is a real opportunity for the agency to go in and just help things along a little bit. How likely is that?
1: Well, I mean, you need a, you need a finding for that. You need, uh, uh, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's rather unlikely. Well, I don't mean um, to
2: help things along with regard to Lukashenko's health.
1: I was going to say. Luke-
2: I just mean that if things start getting a little chaotic, you know, you know the, the opposition presumably we've been supportive of in the past. I just was wondering, what do you think? Should we be supportive of them now?
1: I think using surrogates w- w- would be smarter in the sense of, uh, of Ukrainians doing it themselves. I mean, one thing, and th- and this is going to kind of roll right into a question I have for, for Paul, is, um, you know, things are blowing up in, inside Russia. You know, we know that there's a lot of hand, you know, uh, uh, you know finger wagging um, at the Ukrainians from the U.S. every once in a while where they do something that, that we think is, uh, is perhaps escalatory. And Ukrainians, in essence, say, sorry, 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 we won't do it again. And then they do it again. Um, because they I think there is you know there there's the there's the the view of that I think they are they are correct and that you know their very existence is at stake. um but but I, on that note, you know i wouldn't I wouldn't put a pass um, uh, Ukrainian intelligence to to be thinking along those lines of how do we kind of stir some foment and unrest in Belarus, one of the things that that you see again prevalent, um, uh, and this is nothing inside information. I certainly have no inside information from from the government on this, but you see it reading open source and and all the context that we have is that there are partisans inside Russia who are doing things, probably supported by Ukrainian uh, uh, intelligence. And so, so Paul, on that note, um, what do you think of, of, of that kind of tension between the United States and the fear of escalation versus Ukraine, um, shaping operations, things blowing up uh, uh, inside Russia? Are the Ukrainians right to be doing these operations? Is the U.S. right to be kind of restraining them? Or is this kind of balance actually... Where we kind of scold them for doing things, and that's about it. Is that actually working in everyone's favor, anyhow?
3: Look, two two points I'd make. One, Ukraine has been invaded. It has hundreds of thousands of occupying troops on its territory, laying waste to its cities, abducting its children, raping its women, killing its citizens, uh, sending missiles into civilian apartment buildings, into theaters. Russia is waging unrestricted warfare on a civilian population and on a peaceful nation that did not provoke it. So in response to that, you know, if the U S had been invaded and was similar, would we be like, well, we're not going to, you know, we're just going to fight our own territory. We're not going to, you know, do anything to try to hurt our enemy in his homeland, please. Right. So, um, uh, I think, uh, it's not only justified, um, but imperative, that the war is being carried um, uh, to the aggressor. Um, Second, Mark, you know that intelligence is not just about gathering information, but intelligence has a role in shaping events and in quietly uh, setting the stage. And you see this, sometimes it's public, it becomes public, and often not. Um, My uh, friend and associate at the um, Belfer Center, uh, Calder Walton, is just getting ready to publish a book uh, called Spies – uh, the epic battle between East and West, and what it does is looks at the Cold War and looks at the role that intelligence agencies played in shaping the key events of the Cold War, which are well known, but which the intelligence uh, and covert action stories behind them were not well known. So I think, just you know, historically, we see that as a role, uh, and I see no reason why you know history will have ended
2: uh, with the start of the Ukraine war. It's interesting, though, because I remember at the start of the Ukraine war, a bunch of us, you know, foreign policy types were sitting around saying, how is this going to unfold? And with the kind of knack that we've shown throughout the past 80 years of American history, uh, we pretty much got it all wrong Um, uh, and said, you know, well, you know, if Putin's smart. What he'll do is launch a hybrid war, more little green men, cyber attacks. He wouldn't go in and do this whole crazy thing. Um, and, of course, that was wrong. He, he did go in and do this crazy thing. Meanwhile, uh, Ukraine has shown great resilience. Uh, Ukraine has shown uh, uh, good leadership, uh, 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 strong courage up and down the line. Uh, and the tables have turned somewhat. And even though the front line for the moment is, has been relatively frozen, and that may change in the weeks ahead, uh, there has become this opening. For Ukraine to do a little bit in the area of hybrid war of its own whether it's intelligence operations inside Russia a uh, uh, coordination with other intelligence services now perhaps you know opening up a, a second front in Belarus and 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 so forth um uh, I'm personally of the school that for all the reasons you just enumerated Paul uh, Ukraine's entitled to defend itself and it's entitled to defend itself against any point of origin, of attack or threat against it. Uh, so I I th- I, th- I think the rules of engagement are much broader than the administration may define them. Um, to what extent do you think, you know, this kind of hybrid war could be a uh, an important factor in, in how Ukraine deals with this going forward?
3: Well, you know, look, is it going to have strategic Im- impact? Um, you know, I don't know. I think it, you know, probably has, can have some impact on production when you hit oil facilities uh, that are being used to supply frontline troops, certainly that's that's useful. But I think the biggest value is that it demonstrates that uh, Russia is not invincible, uh, that it can't defend itself, that Putin's, you know, vaunted, you know, uh, rebuilt military is, is a paper tiger. Uh, you saw that, um, you know, you see continued dismissals and arrests, of Russian uh, leadership and and generals, uh, often for corruption, uh, you know that's a you know a a story behind Russia's failures is the I mean you know my favorite you know story was the lack of Russian winter uniforms um, uh, because they were procured but didn't end up at the front. I'm sure they were all sold off in flea markets somewhere in Xinjiang province. Um, uh, but the level of corruption and what that means for Russian capability, Mark, you you understand how deep pervasive that is throughout the uh, uh, throughout Russia. It's the one issue that I fear. You know that you know we've been talking about the military aspect of the war, economic aspect, particularly in the long term, is incredibly important, and it's the one thing that. Ukraine absolutely needs to have a handle on in terms of both reality and in public perception it's the one thing that could undermine Western support and if that's a perception that uh, uh, that money weapons material are being squandered pilfered or um, or or, uh, uh, or falling subject to corruption
1: so uh, I want to talk j- just quickly about uh, uh, some of our partner forces in, in Ukraine. Um, And of course, a a country you work with uh, extensively, particularly in your in your senior roles. And that's that's the UK. That's that's our that's our British counterparts in in, in British intelligence. And one of the things I think that is not been covered enough, at least in the U.S. press, certainly has in in, in Britain, though, is the pretty extraordinary commitment that the the British have made in Ukraine, which kind of goes across the British political spectrum. Unlike here, where, you know, there are some differences, Um, you have British Special Operation Forces actively participating you know, in the fight, unlike in the United States, um, and and just the recent reports over the last couple of days of uh, of the Storm Shadow, uh, you know, uh, you know, long range missile, uh, cruise missile being supplied, which which would be uh, and and actually has been employed apparently over the last um, twenty four forty eight hours. So, tell us a little bit first of all about your experience with British intelligence over the years, and and why you think, or if you think, you know, the you know the the, the, the British really can make a difference. Um, as a as a partner force, when when there's been a lot of talk, of course, that the U.S. needs others to step up more. Seems to me the British certainly have, but but your views on this?
3: No, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Look, the the, both the British uh, military and its intelligence services have been, are a incredibly capable. British military training of Ukrainian forces prior to the war. Uh, has proven to be extraordinarily important um, the leadership that they're showing on the political side uh, their willingness to uh to uh, take risks and to um and to uh, uh, uh provide supplies out of their own limited stocks is is has i think been a uh very important uh, point of both moral and actual uh uh leadership um uh, yeah I, they're they're a uh, there's a reason why we have a special relationship. There's a reason why we work together so well and so closely. They bring capabilities, ethos, spirit uh, to their operations, um, which are frankly inspiring.
1: It, it seems to me they almost have less of a, uh, or they have more of a risk tolerance than we do when it comes to Ukraine. Why, why do you think that is?
3: Well, they, I mean, look, they're, very, they're a very small service. They've got a, a deep, long history. Uh, they're very nimble. Um, and they're very action results oriented, so um, you know I think it, uh, it it fits right in their wheelhouse of, of being able to provide a very effective role in this. And they have long engagement in history.
2: Yeah, all those things are certainly true. Uh, I, I I have a slight uh, a, a bit of resentment because I was talking to a very senior U.S. government official the other day about the Storm Shadow missiles, and he said to me you know that reminds me of the cat stevens song moon shadow and mm-hmm. and frankly every time i've heard the name storm shadow since that song is running through my head which i could have done
1: without yeah
2: no it was really <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise i think you know that that's the british equivalent of attackums, right that's the british equivalent of the missile we won't provide them with so you know um and obviously we knew about it and this was a way to get around that and it was a it was a positive step look this is a very complicated war uh it is boiled down on the uh news for people into little sound bites and uh uh video clips Uh, understanding it with real depth provides requires historical context uh, and also an understanding of what's going on that may not be visible to cameras. That's why this discussion is so great. That's why it was so great to have you here, Paul. That's why it's so great to do this show with you, Mark. And every week, we will bring together uh, folks who can provide us with a picture of the things that cameras can't see. Uh, And I think that's uh it's really a great addition to what we're doing so i want to uh thank you paul for joining us uh kicking this off hope you will come back and join us again mark I really look forward to this uh, collaboration uh, and uh, to, to be having these kind of perspectives every week. Um, and to everybody in the audience, thank you for joining us. Tell your friends about this. This is a, 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 an addition to, uh, you know, there there's several other podcasts out there that deal with Intel things. Uh, our goal is to do what we do, which provides in-depth expert perspectives, uh, but also to try to do it in a way that it's, you know, a little bit interesting, a little bit less boring, and maybe a little bit, you know, edgier periodically uh, than some of those other pods. And we'll, we'll keep trying to do that. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Join us again every week um, uh, for this pod and all our others uh, for now. Bye-bye.